All right. Well, good evening. I think this one's still feeding back or something here, guys. All right. Well, nice to see you. Glad you could be here. There is not going to be a men's Bible study on Friday. That's just one one reminder. That's going to be postponed until next Friday. So no men's Bible study this Friday. Other than that, I'm not really aware of anything else. So we'll have a word of prayer and then we'll get started with tonight's message. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to gather with other believers. Pray that we would just redeem that time and take advantage of it with some sweet fellowship centered around you and just being reminded that while it might feel like we're alone at times, you never forsake us or leave us and you've actually given us quite a few brothers and sisters in Christ that are family for us, even in a sense when sometimes our own even physical families are not not operating f- very functionally or they're not even going, we don't have the closeness that we seek, that we have the opportunity to go through life with many other believers, even though there's many who don't believe in you, there's a lot of people who call on your name and have put their faith in the finished work of your son, his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Thank you that we can take advantage even in the middle of a week of an opportunity to gather together and open the word of God together. What better thing to do with people than to spend some time singing and praying and reading your word together and studying your word. So thank you for this building and this opportunity to do this. Pray that it would be beneficial and it would feed the souls of those that are here tonight and that you would just nourish us with your truth and that we could be guided by it instead of being guided by our flesh or the world around us. Pray that you'd just give me wisdom as I speak so that what is said could be useful and accurate and that it could bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of tonight's message is Vindicate Me, Vindicate Me. As I was thinking even about this word vindicate, it means to clear someone of blame or show or prove to be right, reasonable, or justified a person. To show somebody to be reasonable, right, or justified in what they did, but the, the general idea is to clear someone of blame. So you think about vindicate me. It made me think about how hard the difficulties and some of the trials that we face in life are, especially as they relate to other people. And as you think about life in general, difficulties of various kinds and degrees, unavoidably and unrelentedly, they accompany life. It's not something that can be avoided. There's, there's hard things. There's difficulties. They're unrelenting in the sense that they're continual. You, you get through one trial and it's invariably going to be replaced with something else. God never promised us that our life would be trouble-free or that it would be easy. In fact, he said, in this life you'll have troubles, but you can still be of good cheer because I've overcome the world and you're in me. And if you're in me and I'm the overcomer, that makes you an overcomer too. So he refers to, we could, we could rightfully refer to the troubles and trials of life as light and temporary in view of an eternal perspective. And that's what the believer is asked to have. But at the time, as we're going through those troubles or those difficulties, they can be very difficult. And few trials are harder to bear than being mistreated misrepresented or misunderstood. All of these things speak to a lack 
an underlying lack of fairness or a lack of justice. And you think about the things that are difficult for people to stomach or deal with is a fundamental sense that something is not fair or something is not just or something is not right. You see, even, as, even from a young age, even young children, you can see them become very agitated and upset and frustrated when they believe or they perceive to be experiencing some type of injustice in their life where you commonly hear a child say to a parent about frankly anything, it could be about how a cookie is split in half, right? That's not fair. As they perceive that they got the smaller piece of that cookie, and I say, young people, of course, some of us feel that way too when the cookie gets split, right? So, you know, it's not something that's limited to children. We have this general sense of difficulty in accepting a world that is unjust and a world that is unfair. And God, again, because of the curse of sin, it's tainted everything. And so any sense of fairness or justice that might have been under the complete rule of God before sin entered the picture, that's long gone. From the third chapter of the book of Genesis, second or third chapter, we're not very far into it, and we have everything be tainted by man's rejection and rebellion against God and then the permeating effects of sin on people, but sin on every aspect of life as, as a whole. And so you think about that, with that went out the door any sense of true justice or fairness in this life in terms of being able to expect it or count on it. In fact, we co we've come to expect the opposite, but it's difficult. It's really hard for people to stomach being mistreated, misrepresented, and misunderstood. That lack of fairness and justice is difficult. Now, in response, what happens? Because that goes against the very fabric of our, our, our central being, which, frankly, why are we so focused on justice and fairness? Because at our natural core, we're focused on self. Uh, flesh, the flesh is focused on fairness and justice, not just, not just the spiritual man. The, the flesh is focused on those things because the flesh is focused on self. And so when we have a perception that we're being mistreated or treated unfairly or in, unjustly, we rebel against that. We really are riled up by it and frustrated by it. And so what we do is, as we face that perception of, of injustice and unfairness or even the reality of it is most people unfortunately spend much of their lives in a very defensive posture and mindset, either thinking or obsessing about how they've been wronged or actively defending themselves against immediate real or perceived attacks. I say real or perceived because a lot of that posturing, that, that defensive posture, that self-preservation, self-protective posture, it's actually being marshaled against threats that aren't even real that we're, we're actually perceiving those threats, but they're not even real. Somebody's not actually even out to get us. We have misunderstood or mis, mis, uh, misread the situation where we think something is happening, somebody's attacking us, and our hackles get up and we get defensive. And I would say more as often as not, those people aren't even, don't even mean anything by it. It's just how we're taking it. Now, other times, they absolutely did mean it. And so then we're in a place of having that posture of wanting to defend ourselves, having that mindset where we're thinking and obsessing about how we can, can right those wrongs, about defending ourselves. And often it takes the form, that defensive posture, it takes the form of reputation and perception management. What I mean by that is the idea of, we get the idea that somebody thinks 
a certain negative thing about us or that they've said a certain negative thing about us. And we spend, we, we right away go to that defensive mindset of trying to prove to them that they're wrong or prove to others that they're wrong in what they said and that their perception of us is in fact, is in fact flawed. And so we spend all of our time then, of course, taking the focus off of the Lord, off of the Lord and putting our focus on, on people. That's the biggest problem with having this defensive posture towards the attacks of the world or the attacks of people in our lives, the attacks of others being wronged or, or, or mistreated. When we're focused on that in a very defensive way, we're now not focusing on the Lord. We're, it puts the focus on others and the harm they're perpetrating or thinking potentially, and it, pro, it promotes independent problem-solving that relies on human strength and human wisdom. That's generally the, the default as we feel like we're being attacked. We go into that defensive mode. As we're in that defensive mode, we're now not thinking about the Lord. We're thinking about righting a wrong. And we're seeking to do that through our own strength or through our own wisdom. And God gets excluded from it. And the Bible repeatedly encourages believers to instead of having that defensive posture to protect themselves against being mistreated or being, having people think something that's wrong about them and setting them straight, the Bible encourages us to instead respond in faith and trust the Lord with those things, bring those things to the Lord, cast those cares on Him, depend on Him to undertake. And part of doing that is trusting God to undertake through His strength instead of our own in His way and in His time. There's really three parts to that. I have to come to a place where I'm feeling like I'm being attacked or I'm being treated unfairly or unjust, unjustly, and I can bring it to the Lord with a posture of depending on Him, but I have to trust that He can do it in His strength, in His way, and in His time. And very often we maybe will do one of those, but not all three of those, where we'll say, yeah, Lord, I, I know that I need to give this to you and let you undertake to right this wrong instead of having this defensiveness, this defensive posture that I'm having, or even having this sense of bitterness that then creeps up as a result of feeling like I've been mistreated. Now I, I become angry and bitter. And so instead of that, I have to say, Lord, I need to give this to you, but I need to give it to you in, in your time, in your strength, in your way. I can't give it to you and then insist that you deal with it on my terms, I have to be willing to give it to you and allow you to deal with it on your terms, to undertake to provide for this difficulty that I'm facing as you see fit because I'm going to trust you that you know better and that you're powerful enough to handle this in a way I never could. I also have to be willing to let you do that in your time. I can't become, I can't have a posture where I'm, impatient, and I just can't rest and relax and allow you to sort it out when you see fit, as you see fit, and when you see fit. So that's encouraged by the Word of God, and focusing primarily on God's perspective is another way that the Bible encourages believers to respond in faith and to depend on Him, is as we're facing these hard things, instead of having, again, this posture of defensiveness, is to remember that I'm not primarily concerned about what other people think of me. In fact, I should think very little about what other people think of me other than my testimony for Jesus Christ. But even that I can't control. I should be concerned first and foremost about what you think about me, about your perspective toward me, and, and, and how I'm thinking and how I'm going about living my life. Instead of having that natural tendency to be 
horizontally focused and be looking at people and what they think about my life or how I'm going about living my life. So this, this is an important reminder when we think about vindicate me, this idea of letting the Lord fight these battles for us. Psalm 35, it's a great reminder of these principles or this principle. So let's go through it. There's a lot here tonight. So we're going to have to be moving. We start off with 10 verses or so of this psalm. So I would say roughly a third of it, 28 verses in this psalm, where David is going to be pleading for assistance. So I just have it labeled here, a plea of assistance or a plea for assistance. And so let's look at what he has to say, what he's facing. He says, plead my cause. And there's a song that... um, is on Christian radio, you plead my cause, you, might, you right my wrongs, you overcome. Yeah, the song is called How Can, I, How Can It Be by Lauren Daigle, if you want to listen to it, but you plead my cause. So here we have it. This is where she got it, one of many places that you could get this, but plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me, frankly, against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of, the sh- of shield and buckler. Buckler is a reference to armor. And stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind something that doesn't have weight that is easily blown off to the side, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. So two times there you see, without cause. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly, and let his net that he has hidden catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. So as we break down these first 10 verses, it falls again generally into this plea for assistance. My help comes from you, though, is the first part of this. You can't plea for the Lord's assistance if you don't see that he's the source of help. So my help comes from you. And verses one through three really bring out this idea. As you see him say, plead my cause, O Lord. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of the shield and the armor and stand up for my help. Draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. And then Last part, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Encourage me is effectively what that says. So my help comes from you. Now, all the focus you see here is on God and the request is for his intervention. You can't have victory over these troubles and trials that you face, especially when you feel like you're being mistreated or wronged, misunderstood or wronged by people. You can't do that until you can first see that there's only one place to turn and that's to look up. Look up, child, go vertical with your concerns, but have this mindset that says, Lord, I see that I need to come to you when I face a trouble. I cannot bear my burdens alone. That's why our song here, I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus all of my trouble. I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me. Jesus alone, is that the perspective we're going to have? But David, he's come to that place where he perhaps had tried self-help 
He, he had perhaps tried to sort things out on his own. He definitely had at other times in his life. Maybe he's learned over time and maybe as he faces this r- being wronged or being maligned in this way that he's facing here unjust, unjustly or in, in a way that isn't fair, unfairly, maybe he comes to the Lord right away. That, that would be God's desire or God's will for our lives is that we would come to him first. So all the focus here is on God and I hope if you take nothing else away, when you're facing troubles, the Lord has to be your source of help and your self, source of focus. So you, hear the, you see this phrase, plead my cause, and that represents a call for vindication. Remember, we define that as to clear someone of blame. Vindicate me, plead my cause. It's like it has a courtroom motif where there's some sort of a dispute and David feels like I'm on the right side of this and he's sort of saying, Lord, come and plead my case. Show that I'm in the right here. Show that I'm just in my perspective and where I'm at. And it's in fact my enemies or those who are attacking me that are in the wrong, not, not me is the idea. Now, again, David is trusting the Lord to accomplish this. And the remainder of these verses, the first three verses, involve requesting God's protection. Fight against those who fight against me. Stand up for my help. Stop those who pursue me. And then I love how it ends with David also asking for encouragement and for confidence, that the Lord would provide him with confidence. He says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. In a sense, remind me. Show me, show me that you are the one who can save and can rescue and can undertake with what it is that I'm going through presently. Show me that. Do you pray that? Have you ever prayed this? Lord, say to my soul, convince the very essence of who I am that you are a saving God, that you are my source of salvation regardless of what it is that I'm facing. You know, you, you had to come to that understanding in order to be justified, to be put in a right standing with a holy God in spite of your sinfulness, as you had to come to a place where you'd say, Lord, show me that you are the only way. You are the only way that I can be rescued from the hell I deserve to a heaven I don't. And that it's only through complete faith in your finished work on my behalf that I could be put in a right standing with you. I could be declared to be righteous. Your righteousness could be imputed to me on the basis of my complete trust, dependence, and faith in you. But do you do that with the troubles of everyday life? As God's child, do you have a posture that says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. And I don't think we say that enough. I don't think we have that mindset where we say, Lord, remind me. Convince my soul, convince my very inner being that you alone are the source of rescue and salvation. So this is a reference to How am I going to have peace? How am I going to have rest in the face of trials? And and I need peace and I need rest in the face of injustice, in the face of unfairness that is coming my way. Now we have this section here under this plea for assistance, more general section, but we had a subsection in here, four through eight here, where I just have it labeled, I don't wish you well. I don't wish you well. And this this is a little bit of a challenge in the sense that David is asking God to judge his enemies. And he, he says, let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Now, is that happening to him? The answer seems to be yes, it is. Who is seeking after his life? Much speculation. It doesn't say which enemies he's facing here. Some say this is when Saul was seeking after his life, but his own son Absalom, of course, s- sought his life. He faced 
others that were seeking his life at other times in his life. But in any event, he's asking God to judge his enemies. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery, meaning let them not get any traction to the plots that they're scheming. Let the angel of the Lord pursue them. Why? For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. Basically, let him reap what he's trying to sow towards me. He's wanting this to be true of me. Lord, make it true of him. Now you can take this figuratively or literally, but these are sometimes referred to as imprecatory prayers. And I'm not an expert on it, but I would say this about them. Some people take this idea that it's still a good thing or something that we should do regularly where we should be praying that God would judge our enemies that God would destroy our enemies. And I don't find that to be something that can be supported, certainly in the New Testament. And I don't even think that's the focus here, actually. These prayers are written not so much to exact revenge upon one's enemies, but rather to emphasize God's disdain or abhorrence of evil. That's one part of it is David is sort of just saying the same thing as God in a sense. You're saying, I know that you hate evil too, God. I know you hate rebellion and rejection against you. And by the way, this rejection that's taking place here is probably by believers. It's, it's by fellow, it's by people that David knows who are part of the, the nation of those set apart, the nation of Israel. The, these are, these are not the, the loss, so to speak, from the perspective of the Old Testament. This is, this is a part of David's very nation that are his enemies in this case. So the second thing that they're written about, again, instead of more of a focus on exacting revenge, it's God doesn't like rebellion, rejection, and evil. God is sovereign over all mankind. So what he's really saying here is he's, in effect, by saying these things, he's saying, God, I know that you're in control. I know that you can undertake. I know that you can right this wrong. You could, you could exact justice where there is injustice that has been occurring. You can deal with fairness where there's been fairness that was lacking. You could make things right. You could right the wrongs, Lord. I know that you can do that. And the last aspect of these types of prayers is that they're focused on God's divine protection of his chosen people. The emphasis is praying for justice and judgment against those opposed to God taking offense to the rebellion against God versus any sort of a sense of being overly or primarily offended about the personal opposition to himself. And if David's thinking right, he would be less concerned about those that are opposing him and more concerned about the God that he serves that they're ultimately opposing. You see, for the Christian, the Bible tells us that if we're serving the Lord, they're not really opposing us. The injustice and the persecution and the opposition the difficulties that we face were, were said that they're going to be because a person is ultimately rejecting God. And if you're going to be identified with God, if you're going to be identified as being on the side of righteousness, then you're going to face opposition that's not so focused on you. Ultimately, it's opposition that's focused on God. And that's what David takes offense at 
more so even than the opposition that he faces, though he's asking God for help with it. This perspective, as you think about even emphasizing God's divine protection over his chosen people, the nation of Israel, the perspective here that David has is best understood in the context of God's covenant promises to national Israel, where what did God say to national Israel? I will bless them that bless you, I will curse them that curse you, and that was a perpetual covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. So in that context with David having that type of a mentality, he was also anointed as the rightful king of the nation of Israel. So to oppose him was to oppose God in a sense. So David would have this perspective that to ask for God to, to sort of exercise judgment against those that were ultimately opposing God himself would be the proper thing to do. And so the focus of this prayer seems to be more for justice and deliverance because from this perspective, the perspective of him being the rightfully anointed king, the perspective of God's covenant promises to national Israel, David's enemies were really synonymous with God's enemies. And so the other part of it is that this hostility that David faced was undeserved and unjust. You see that in verse 7. For without cause, they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they dug, again, without cause for my life. So there's also some level of poetic hyperbole in David's call for destruction. The context of verses 11 through 15, we'll see, actually show that these enemies that he is writing about are actually friends, fellow believers. Or fe believers is, I guess, maybe a stretch. It would be hard to say that, I guess. But fellow Israelites and people that David cared for. And we'll touch on that a, a more in a second. But these enemies are from within. These are people that David's going to say, I really cared for these people. I had a completely different perspective towards them. I mourned for them. I cried for them. I, I loved them. I, I responded with compassion to them when they were going through troubles. And so that's what I mean about how are you going to take some of this stuff? Are you going to take it as that David literally wants them to be destroyed or he just wants justice. He wants, he wants God to come right these wrongs and to help even to show them their, the error in their thinking. When, it, when they're brought to confusion, this idea of that they'll have their mind altered in a way where they would potentially see that what they've been doing is wrong. Now, some say, and again, I'm not, I wouldn't hold myself out to be an expert on this. If you're an expert on imprecatory prayers and you think I'm wrong about this, certainly feel free to let me know, but I don't see praying for judgment against our enemies as something that is covered as a theme of the New Testament at all. It's hard to even find one example of it. You could say Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm and Paul sort of seems to say he should get his just deserves for that. Maybe that's one example, but that's not a prayer. That's not something that you'd find regularly. What do you find instead? See, I just don't think praying for the judgment of enemies is the proper focus of prayer at all, but certainly not in the New Testament, not in the age of grace, not outside of the covenantal promises that God made to the nation of Israel. And if you're not sure about that, the New Testament repeatedly encourages believers to love and pray for their enemies, not to pray for their destruction or for even for their judgment. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 5. I want to show you Jesus talking about this in one example. 
This is not the only one. This is an example. Verse 44 is what we're looking for. 544. Pick up in verse 43, actually. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. So that's pretty much on point, isn't it? But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, meaning that's the kind of mentality or behavior that would be consistent with a child of God because it was modeled by Jesus Christ himself. For he makes his son rise on the evil, talking about God now, God the Father. He doesn't have that perspective towards those who are mistreating us. He makes his son which is beneficial to all of the earth, rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And he then goes on to say, for if you love those who love you, if that's the perspective you're going to have, do unto others as they do to you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors who are viewed as being unrighteous, they're viewed as being Yeah, what is the word I want? unreliable, cheats, that's the word maybe. They're viewed as being dishonest. That was the word I wanted. Just takes me a minute sometimes. They're viewed as being dishonest. But even they, it says, they, they naturally, of course, love those that love them. So he says, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? That's exactly what anyone would do is to love their own their own brethren. Do not even the tax collectors do so? Again, using them as an example. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, a mature way of dealing with this would be God's way of dealing with it, which is to love your enemies. Turn to Romans chapter 12. In case you think, well, that was just in the context of the kingdom offer, that was Jesus talking, and not something that we would apply to ourselves in the church age, following Christ's death. Romans 12, let's look at verse 14. Simple verse. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. Consider also the examples that we have of even Jesus and Stephen in the New Testament. Those are two that came to mind, but the Apostle Paul had a very similar perspective as he talked about people who had abandoned him. What did he say? We just looked at this in 2 Timothy. May it not be laid to their charge. Don't, don't hold it against them that they treated me that way. All had forsaken him and abandoned him. He says, don't, don't let that be laid to their charge. Now, he got that perspective first and foremost from Jesus Christ himself. In Luke 23, 34, as Jesus is on the cross dying for sinners, what does Jesus say? And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. 
What did Stephen say as he was being stoned unjustly? Stephen says in Acts 7, 60, then he knelt down. These are the last gasps of his, of his life. He knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice. He didn't even keep this to himself. He cried this out with a loud voice to those who were stoning him. And he said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And those are the last words he said because then it says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. So very interesting. I think that's the biblical perspective on this. It's funny that somebody just asked me about this on, on Sunday. It wouldn't be my take that that should be a regular habit of ours. I just don't see evidence for that in the New Testament. Again, if you think I have that wrong, come set me straight. Now let's pick up in verses 9 and 10 in this plea for assistance. It ends with, God gets all the praise and the glory. So he's going to ask God for assistance, but he's going to do that recognizing that God is the one who should be praised and get the glory. It says in verse 9, And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. This is upon asking God for assistance. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. So we end here with this fun little section where David just, he writes with such confidence regarding God's anticipated deliverance. And then he's talking about here his anticipated response, but God hasn't even undertaken yet. He's just asking God for assistance, but in 9 and 10, he's foreshadowing, he's looking forward, and he's saying, and my soul shall be joyful in the Lord when this happens. When what I've asked you to do happens, and you provide that rescue and assistance, then I'm going to be joyful, and I'm going to rejoice in your salvation. Pretty awesome that David has that perspective. Well, we get to verse 11 through 18 here, and we see that persecution is often undeserved and without justification. So this particular difficulty and struggle and uh, oppression that David is facing, this injustice and unfairness, it's undeserved. It's undeserved. And that's what makes it so hard to respond with a vertical mindset in those places, especially when we think, I didn't do anything to deserve this. Naturally, if we suffer for our wrongdoing, we've got nobody to blame. We, we don't need vindication in that sense. And two, I think a lot of the times we think that we're suffering through no fault of our own. That's not even true. The reality is that we kind of are reaping what we've sown. We actually have, we are receiving the just uh, consequences, so to speak, of decisions and actions that we've made, things that we've said, things that we've done, that we're not right. Uh, and so then we, we like to justify that and play the victim and feel like I'm being mistreated somehow. And the truth is we've brought it on ourselves as much times as not. But in this case, the persecution is undeserved and it's without justification. And I would say if you're serving the Lord, all of the persecution that you're going to face is without justification and it's unfair and it's without it's not deserved. It's because of your association, again, with Christ. If you're going to serve him, you're going to face this kind of opposition, but let's just see David summarize this. Now, I already kind of mentioned, these are friends that he's talking about, people he knows. Verse 11, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good. So how did he treat them? He treated them with goodness, and they responded with evil. They, to the sorrow of my soul, it makes me very sad. But as for me, when they were sick, so they fell on hard times, or they'd gone through difficult times, and how did he react? David says, when that happened to them, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, meaning I was mourning, 
for them. I humbled myself with fasting. I wasn't even eating because I was, I was fasting for their recovery. My prayer would return, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother, whoever this is that he's talking about. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother, meaning I was praying, I was saddened, I was upset, I was burdened for what they were going through. Now, is that how they're treating him, though? This is the undeserved part of it. But in my adversity, they rejoiced. So as I'm going through hard things, they tried to take advantage of it. They became my enemies. They gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Verse 17, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. Again, forward-looking, when this happens, I know you're going to do this. That's what my response is going to be. I will praise you and give you thanks publicly in the great assembly. I will lift your name up. So David here, though, in this section, he's summarizing how unfairly he's being treated by his enemies. He communicates the sorrow that this causes him, especially when you see, to the sorrow of my soul in verse 12, in the last part of that verse. He describes having treated them graciously and lovingly in verses 13 and 14, very poetic language about his care and concern for them. But he contrasts his care for them during hardship that they were going through with their treatment of him, which is unfair and unjust in verses 15 and 16. That's hard. These are hard circumstances for us to feel like we've had a certain way of dealing with somebody only for them to not reciprocate, for them to not respond in kind. And that's exactly what David was feeling. What's interesting is you look at verse 17, you see frustration. And, and what I want to bring out, and I hope that's coming out in this series on the Psalms that we're going through is, it's certainly appropriate to be honest, raw, and real with God. We talked about that. We talk about that often in the series. David doesn't pull punches. He doesn't like worry or tiptoe around with God. He just lets God know how he's feeling. Imagine saying this to God, though. Lord, how long will you look on? Like, who are you? Now say that to yourself. Who do you think you are, right, Dad? It's something that my dad who's here tonight says. Who do you think you are? Do you, do you ever wonder when you have this sense of frustration at the sovereign creator, God of the universe, and you're like, why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you undertaking? Who, who exactly do you think you are that you think that God needs to answer to you or that his ways are not higher than your ways and that his thoughts are not higher than your thoughts? Well, that just doesn't sink in sometimes, though, because we think that God owes us a certain kind of treatment. That God owes us explanations for what it is that we're going through. God doesn't owe us anything. If, if God treated us in anything other than grace and love and mercy and compassion and, and providing for us like, like children, we would be lost forever. But yet God treats us how we don't deserve to be treated in grace. That's the story of the Bible, how gracious God is, how loving God is, how he undertakes for man when man cannot undertake for himself, how God provides a way when there is no way, how if we would just learn to trust him completely, we could thrive in our lives, we could bring him glory, and we could benefit ourselves by living a life that would be filled with joy and purpose and contentment and peace and hope, perspective, all these things that we want, if we could just trust God in, in spite of not having all the answers. 
not understanding what it is that God is doing. But David says to the Lord, Lord, how long will you look on? You see, faith and frustration are not exclusive. So if you're in that place where you're frustrated by how God is dealing with you, how your circumstances are going, again, most of those are not something that God directly brought about. They're the result of our own choices, other people's choices. In an in a environment where God allows people free choice and free will, allows men to make decisions and to suffer the consequences of those decisions. God doesn't intervene to stop it, although he could. And at times, of course, he does intervene, but he doesn't always. So as you're thinking about thinking about all that, is it wrong to be frustrated by trials or suffering or difficulties or hardships or unfairness or injustice that you're facing? The answer is no. It doesn't even mean that you don't have faith. The issue is not, do I have frustration and does that mean I have no faith? They're not exclusive. The issue is, what will I do with the frustration? How, how will I handle what it is that I'm going through? And see, even when he's frustrated, David still ultimately trusts God to provide. And you see that in verse 18. Again, that confidence that I'm asking you to, to undertake God. And I know you will because I'm going to give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. This is almost a foregone conclusion in David's mind that God will undertake. But he's still honest and real, talking about maybe how he felt at some point in this process. Now we look at the vindication part of this, vindicate me. And talking about trusting the Lord for vindication, we saw you plead my cause. We saw that from the very, very beginning of the psalm, but now we see him kind of get back to that theme. In verses 19 through 27, we sort of see this being our, our final main thought. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies. Again, wrongfully. There's this injustice side to this. This is why David is struggling so much with this. Nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause, like they get a glee in their eye because they're getting away with it. For they do not speak peace. They're not, but they devise deceitful matters. They're not truthful against the quiet ones in the land. They, they have bad motives. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Now, seen it without truth. This you have seen, O Lord. Now, he just, he knows that God is aware of these things. O Lord, do not be far from me, but why haven't you undertaken yet? I want you to act. I want you to intervene, Lord. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication. What is David looking for? He's, he's looking to be cleared of blame, to be proven to be right or justified. It's not wrong to want that, but are you going to try to folk, are you going to fixate on that? Are you going to obsess about that? Are you going to try to accomplish that in your own strength? Is that going to be your priority? The thing that you're fixated on in your life is vindicating yourself? No, he says, stir up yourself to my vindication. Bring that about, God, to my cause. Again, you plead my cause. My God and my Lord. You see how focused that is on God's intervention? Verse 24, now he says, vindicate me. There's our title, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. Not vindicate me for something that I've done that was I deserve to face some pushback on or blowback on or consequences for. Vindicate me for this injustice that I'm facing. So that's his perspective. But what's the posture? posture of dependence. 
posture of turning to the Lord for this, a posture that says, in terms of what is right before you, don't let them rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, ah, so we would have it. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Don't give them victory, Lord. That would be unjust. That would actually undermine you, Lord, because they're really against you. They're not, it's not, they are against me, but they're ultimately against you, so don't give them the satisfaction of that, Lord. Let them instead be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Let them shout for joy in contrast. There are people who have supported him. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And then 28's a, a different thought. So we'll just look at this section briefly here. See, David desperately seeks the Lord's deliverance from the adversity that he faces. And, and I've mentioned it already. I'm not going to belabor the point, but the Lord cannot vindicate you or clear you of blame if you are actually to blame. See, we have this again, who are wrongfully my enemies in 19, at the back half of verse 19. There's no way to ask God to fight your, your battle, in a sense, to rescue you, to save you, in a context here of vindication, because to be vindicated is to be shown to be justified, to be cleared of wrongdoing, in a sense, cleared of blame. How, how could God do that if you are to blame, if you were wrong in what you were doing? So that's something to consider. But he, he directly asks the Lord for vindication twice here. Now, the other thing to take away here, though, and I think it's very important, because I think this gets easily lost. We need to remember that even though we have a perspective that this is true at times, everyone is not against you just because some are. Everyone is not against you just because some are. That's true in the context of any body. Now, this is national Israel, the context there. These are people that he was apparently close to. We could easily make an application to our church family. Are there going to be times where their people are kind of against you, even within a, a church body? The answer is yes. Sometimes will that be unfairly, where people have a bad impression of you or a bad opinion of you? Their perception of you is not good. Is, is it, can that be true? And the answer is yes. And sometimes their perception is somewhat justified by decisions that you've made. Other times it's going to be unfair. But does that mean that because some people are against you, everyone's against you? You know that at any given time, if you're operating in a place of leadership, there's going to be some people who are somewhat against you. I'm not saying, I'm not necessarily saying like they have some like dark plot to get you, but they're kind of against you in the sense that they're murmuring and complaining about decisions that they perceive to be made that were different than what they think should have been done. You know, you know that even around here, uh, at, at times, because decisions are continually being made, and not all of those decisions could possibly be the decision that every person would make, that naturally speaking, you're always going to have a perspective or an understanding or, or make a decision that can potentially offend or bother somebody. 
And if enough people are sort of like murmuring and complaining, criticizing, undermining, kind of chopping down behind the scenes and their conversation is not to build up, their conversation is to focus on all the things that they can, again, undermine and criticize and complain about within even the church, it can start to feel like, well, everyone's against me. And the truth is, the, the vast majority of people are not. That, that could be an experience that you're having where there's been a couple of people that have given you a hard time, treated you unfairly, been even vindictive towards you. And the truth is, though, that there's a whole bunch of people that have probably been very supportive. They maybe haven't said anything to you directly, but they're on your side. They care about you. They love you. Unbeknownst to you, they've been praying for you. Maybe unbeknownst to you, God is using them as a part of the solution to that problem to actually maybe try to help sort things out be the peacemaker, maker, the go-between, the one who could help resolve some of those things. And that's happening here with David too. It's wrong to get this perspective that everybody is against me. Read verses 26 and 27. So on one hand, you have some that are against him. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Are there some that are against him? Yes. But verse 27 here, you see, there are some that are not. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. So there are those that are on David's side. And I think it's, there's two categories of people described. There's two outcomes that are requested. But God's deliverance on the side of those who are on the righteous side of this, on the right side of it, God's deliverance is equated with God being magnified. See, the ultimate focus here isn't on David being vindicated. That's what he's asking for, but the outcome of his being vindicated is that the Lord will be magnified. Is that your perspective as you're thinking about being vindicated, getting some justice, getting some fairness in a situation where you're being mistreated or treated unfairly? Is your primary concern, again, your reputation being fixed or the perception that people have of you being righted? Or is your proper or your first priority that God would be somehow magnified by the truth coming out or by things being righted or, or by there being a better level of fellowship amongst believers or an axe sort of being buried and things being healed, a wound, a wound being bound up and treated properly so that it can heal. Is your purpose so that you would feel better or that people would think more highly of you or is, is the purpose going to be that the Lord would be magnified in all this? And hopefully that was David's perspective. It's hard to tell from just that one passing reference, but it may have been. So you think about this idea of being vindicated. He's asking God to vindicate him. He's trusting God to do it. And one of the things to be reminded of is that God does not want you to be vindictive. God does not want you to respond in kind. God does not want you to be the one seeking your own vindication. Now, let's go to Romans 12 we were there already, I just want to see that that thought that we started, it picks up again with a very famous passage on this. We, and don't worry, we only have one more verse in our psalm here. We're, we're right at the doorstep of finishing this off. Romans 12, 17. Remember, we saw 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. 
Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the perspective to have about these things. Imagine how frustrating it will be to somebody who's out to get you. Let's just assume that they actually are out to get you. In those occasions when that is happening, that your response to them is grace. Your response to them is love and compassion. Your response to them is kindness and goodness as led and directed by the Spirit of God, not as something pumped out by your flesh. But as the Spirit of God works in you where you're not going to become angry, you're not going to become vindictive, you're not going to become bitter, you're going to respond in grace, giving them what they do not deserve because the love of Christ is filling you with his kind of love as you respond with the love that the Spirit of God produces in yielded, yielded believers as you're depending and resting and trusting in him. That's going to be something that is going to be hard for them to even bear. It's going to, it's going to show them how foolish what they've been doing to you is. And it may bring about restoration when it's all said and done. Now we'll end with verse 28 here, our last verse in Psalm 35. And it talks, it talks here about how, is, how are we going to respond to all this? How is, what is David's intended response to seeing the Lord undertake with this dilemma that he's facing? So he's saying, let them, those who are on my side, they're going to be magnifying the Lord in this. Okay, they're going to be shouting for joy. But what's he going to be doing? He says, in my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Should the Lord choose to undertake and to right this wrong, to vindicate David, to answer his prayer request here, should the Lord do that? David's saying he's going to get all the praise. He's going to get all of the glory. And you see, too often believers seek the Lord's intervention only to forget to praise him or remember him when he does undertake to provide. How sad is that? Oftentimes in the face of what we're going through, we cry out to the Lord for help. Often he does respond and he does help. But then as soon as the pain is alleviated, we forget all about him. We don't praise him. We don't honor him. We don't thank him. We don't, we don't even remember what he's done. And so David has this perspective that all the days long, the rest of his life, he's not going to forget to sing God's praises. And he has, again, this confidence that the Lord is going to undertake. In part, he has that confidence because the Lord has, in this context, he has, he has promised to intervene on behalf of Again, the national Israel and even his anointed one. So we look at vindicate me. And you think about how easy it is to, to sort of be in a place where you, you need vindication because somebody is treating you unfairly. But the question isn't, will that happen? The question isn't, will it be frustrating when that happens or will it be hard? The question is, how will I respond? And believers need to give these things to the Lord. And as I was thinking about vindicate me, you'd never be in that posture unless you were convinced that God is big enough to deal with people's perception of you, people's, I should say, misperception of you, people's mistreatment of you. Is God big enough in your mind? Do you think God can handle what you're going through? See, God doesn't need your help. You need his help. 
And that's why when we go vertical with these problems that we face in life, this just happens to be one where his reputation is on the line. He's been, things have been said that are false about him. He's been blamed. He wants, justif- he wants to be justified or to be cleared of wrongdoing. But that's just one of many trials. And God doesn't want you to focus on how you can fix him with this sort of horizontal view, but how can you trust him and depend on his ability to provide? See, the default is always to try to defend. The default is always to try to handle things on your own. The default is always to try to manage the problem. The default is always to try to finesse the situation. Having this perspective that says, I need to set them straight. I need to make them see that this perception of me is wrong. I need to counter their attack. But that's not how God wants us to respond. He wants us to give it to him. And that will never happen absent learning to trust him. That will never happen if you're not enjoying him. That will never happen if you haven't experienced his provision in your life. Are you convinced? Can you let go and let God undertake with even something like vindicating you? Even undertake with managing your reputation or other people's perception of you? Could we give that to God? And what a good reminder that we should. And David was a good illustration of how he did in this instance. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for this psalm that we could look at tonight. Pray that it would have been encouraging to us as very often the thing that we're most focused on is what other people think about us and trying to manage, manage those thoughts or manage those perceptions or our reputation. Pray that we would just give things over to you even when people are treating us unfairly or unjustly, that when we're frustrated by life and we're going through hardships and suffering and trials, that we would turn to you, that we would depend on you. We would have tasted and seen that you're good. We'll have, we would have been convinced in the past that you're the only place to go to in times of trouble. Frankly, you're the only place to go to. We should be living life with you all of the time anyway. But we're convinced that you're the one to leave these things with. You're the one to cast these cares upon and that we can have confidence that you will undertake sometimes undertaking by actually removing the trial or dealing with the trial in sort of the way that we would most like, but other times just giving us the grace that's necessary to endure what we're going through with a heart that can still trust you, can grow in you, and can experience your peace, hope, joy, contentment, and rest even in the face of that trial. Pray that you would just keep our focus on you and teach us to, ke- to look up, to look vertical, when we face these difficulties in life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, does anyone have any prayer requests? Yes. Yeah, I have that on. Chuck? I have that on the prayer list. I just haven't sent it out. Chuck, what's his last name? Can you say that again? Okay, that will be coming out on the, probably later tonight, I'll try to get that out. Anyone else? All right, well, thanks for coming. If you want to, you know, pray with somebody, now's the time to do that. We'll shut those back doors and try to keep the kids out of here for a minute. But if you want to pray and enjoy some time of fellowship, I'd encourage you to stay. Thanks for coming.